Was it uh, terrific, Tim, that was up here? Did I get that right? Uh, just in case you didn't know, Tim is uh, one of your ordained deacons, uh, so I just thought I'd let you know that in the midst of uh, announcing uh, the singles ministry. Appreciate uh, Joe and all of those that are seeking to gather in others. Let's pray as we look at God's Word before we go to the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, you, by your Spirit, are our teacher. Spirit of God, illumine your Word. Uh, make it shine with understanding and application. We ask it for Jesus' glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Three key words as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Uh, death, forgiveness, and new life. The order is significant, not only as we look at uh, what Jesus brings, but as we look at how he calls us to follow him. Death, forgiveness, and new life. I want to both move forward just a little bit to bridge with where we're going next week, but also tie back to where we were last week. So if you uh, weren't with us last week in Matthew 18, uh, I don't have time to review much. I just want to dive a little deeper on one or two things. Um, but uh, to get started, I want us uh, to think about the reality, we can't think about it enough, that Jesus' death and resurrection are the crux of his ministry. There are many aspects uh, to what Jesus did and to what he said, uh, but at the heart of it all is his death and the resurrection. Think with me uh, a little bit about where we've been in recent uh, weeks, and if you've been reading in the Gospels now or before, uh, of the flow, uh, kind of the melody line, the melodic line of what's happening in this portion of the Gospel of Matthew in particular that led up to chapter 18. Uh, we've already spoken of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and immediately after that confession, that's when Jesus begins to speak to Peter and the disciples that he's going to go into Jerusalem and that he's going to suffer at the hands of men and that he's going to be killed and that he's going to rise uh, the third day. And Peter immediately replies, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And I don't think he expected Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. Do you know the words that Jesus said right after that? So often we grab a phrase, but we don't look at even the sentence, let alone the paragraph. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of men. Because in the things of God, uh, death comes before forgiveness. But in the minds of men, death can never be good, really. We don't look at it that way, do we? Not ultimately. But Jesus has a direction, an eternal plan that he's carrying out. And Jesus immediately instructs his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, it has come into Christian vocabulary over the centuries. Uh, 
oh, the cross I have to bear, or phrases like that, which we often apply to tough seasons. Uh, May I disabuse you of that in relation to this passage? It's not that there aren't hard things we have to bear. We all know that, those of us that are very old. But what Jesus is saying in this passage is that this pattern of death, resurrection, with forgiveness coming out of the death, is really the pattern both for him and if we're going to receive what he does for us, there's a sense in which we have to die first. If you've been listening, we've been showing how Jesus is uh, turning everything upside down, and he's saying that my focus, those whom I honor, are the least. He lifted up the little child. Uh, The lost, he went after the one sheep, uh, had the shepherd go after the one sheep in the parable. Uh, uh, The little, the least, the little, the children uh, again. Um, He's turning it upside down, and death is the ultimate turning it upside down, that the way to life is through death. And if you follow him, you're going to turn your life upside down. Have you noticed that? Uh, When I first became a Christian, I assumed everything would get better. And as I look back now, honestly, uh, things were, generally speaking, pretty good. I mean, we'd had tough times in my family. I mentioned a couple of them, my mom's cancer, my brother's death. But but life was going reasonably well for me. But I got into more trouble after I got to know Jesus. New kinds of trouble. Uh, But I struggled with more things and how to fit things together. It was deeply more meaningful. Uh, I had more friends than I'd ever had before in my life, and and friends that have stuck as friends for decades, not the fickle stuff, uh, uh, where I had a friend in high school, a guy that I thought was my best friend, who uh, got angry at me when I dropped him off at his house one night, or I think he dropped me off at mine, and said, I never want to talk to you again, and he didn't. It was different in the gospel. I mean, I found some tremendously different things, but the reality is there is a sense in which Daily as we live in Christ, we take up the cross that reminds us that we put to death the old life outside of Christ, and we live our life in Christ, Christ in us, and we live in a whole new way. Jesus then allows Peter, James, and John to witness his transfiguration on the mountain where Moses and Elijah appear and a voice from the cloud speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus tells them not to fear, to tell no one what they've seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. There again, he's reminding the disciples, and they're still kind of, what? Well, if you're going to be raised from the dead, you've got to die. He must have really meant that. And their distress and their confusion is growing. And then as he comes down the mountain, gathering all the disciples in Galilee, he tells them about his suffering is being killed, is being raised again. All of the disciples get this that time from him. And Peter and the disciples are distressed. Remember, can't repeat all that we said or much of we said, but then comes this fascinating little parable in action of the fish with the coins for the temple tax in his mouth. And I said to you that, in effect, Jesus is saying, Peter, I got this. Don't fret this, don't fret anything. I've got you. And immediately comes the disciples' discussion of who's the greatest in the kingdom. I said, perhaps they're wondering who will lead if Jesus uh, indeed dies and Jesus honors the child. And um, I want to briefly tie this together with the same flow in the Gospel of Luke. Because the parables of grace that we're going to continue with next week, probably with uh, what has been called the Good Samaritan, 
really are in this same flow that we've been looking at in Matthew. In uh, Luke 8, we have Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus confirms that that tells no one to uh, tells them to tell no one, to, uh, he announces his suffering, his rejection by the elders, the chief priests and scribes in Jerusalem, announces his death. He takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and an interesting detail is added in Luke's gospel. As he's with Moses and Elijah, they spoke of Jesus' departure, the ESV says. I may have said this to you in another setting, but uh, uh, that's an interesting word in the Greek. Jesus Moses and Elijah speak of Jesus' exodus, is the Greek word. Now, you know much Bible at all, even a little bit. If it's Moses talking about the exodus, you kind of go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a big code word with flashing neon lights, you know, on it. Uh, They're talking about Jesus' exodus, and Elijah, by the way, had an exodus, didn't he? In a chariot. Wow, that's the way to go out like Wagner's ring and going out in the swan boat. Uh, for those that, not many people know that anymore. I shouldn't have used that illustration. Uh, but uh, this exodus is different, isn't it? Because it's the exodus that Jesus will accomplish in Jerusalem. And we know what's coming. He's back to talking about his death again. Luke mentions the same basic events that we've seen in Matthew. They come down the mountain uh, and then there's a major transition in Jesus' ministry in Luke 9, 51. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. Luke chapter 9, especially uh, the first two or three verses, uh, but I want to read 9, 51 through 56, Luke. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, He, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Can't take long here, but just in case you're not familiar with the Samaritans, uh, they were half-breed Jews. When everybody got chased out of the land in the exile, there were some who stayed. Some of them intermarried with foreigners. Uh, They came up with a hybrid Jerusalem there in the area north of Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim and Ebal where Moses read uh, or Joshua read the blessings and the curses from the law. Uh, They had their own Passover different from the Passover in Jerusalem. And uh, the main Jewish people didn't like them very much. And Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, gets in trouble for talking to Samaritans. So now Jesus, who was exiled, uh, pushed away from his fellow Jews for talking to Samaritans, send his disciples to bless the Samaritans. And guess what? They don't like him either. And that's what the text says. But the people did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. Remember the woman at the well and that passage. Don't have time for it, but you can read it later. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us uh, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Maybe uh, those guys still didn't like the Samaritans much either. And they didn't like how they were being treated by them. But Jesus turns and rebukes them. And they went on to another village. Two key phrases in verse 51. 
For him to be taken up, this is the only place in the Greek New Testament where the noun, it's a noun idea, being taken up. That word is only used here in the Greek New Testament. But the verbal form, to take up, is used a bunch of other times. And the most interesting thing about it is five of them refer to Jesus' bodily ascension into heaven after the resurrection. And for us, three are really important. Luke, or Luke writes them in Acts 1, verse 2, Acts 1, verse 11, and Acts 1, verse 22. And in Acts 1, 22, the ESV translates it, the day when he was taken up from us. Why do I go into all that? It's because it's pretty unlikely that Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and who wrote the book of Acts, led by the Spirit, uses that same verb and the noun to talk about Jesus' ascension, and he doesn't mean his ascension here, but I think he means more than his ascension. He means the ascension as the fulfillment of what? His death and resurrection. Thank you. Right on. It's the summary of, of the three. It's the consummation of the three. It's Jesus' bodily death, his bodily resurrection, and the consummation is his bodily ascension from which comes his reign in heaven and his pouring out the Holy Spirit and great blessings that come to us. We've sung about them this morning. And the second phrase is, therefore, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. If it's not clear enough already that his death is at the center of his being taken up and is the essence of his mission, we uh, think about that phrase, that he's going to Jerusalem and he's already, already told them what's going to happen. I want us next to go back uh, to the parable in Matthew 18 of the king who's forgiving and his servant is unforgiving and show how it foreshadows this centrality of the cross. But real quickly, a couple of other things about the cross and resurrection. Uh, I deliberately put uh, in the first point, the word crux. We don't use it that commonly today, but you know what the word crux means? It's Latin for the cross. Uh, anybody use the word crucial in the last month or so? so? Uh, the word crucial in English is a fruit of the reality of the church's understanding that the cross of Jesus is the crux of everything. It's the crucial thing, and if you miss it, you've missed everything. And if we talk about the Christian faith and we don't talk about the cross, and if as disciples we don't think about the fact that Jesus tells us that we daily need to take up our cross, which does for us daily, so it doesn't mean we're going to die that day like his did. But it means we're going to live putting to death the old life and being sanctified in the new. I put on the outline, I'm not going to spend any time on it, nine aspects of salvation through God's Son. Incarnation, sinless life, at the center, atoning death, bodily resurrection, bodily ascension, and then the rain from heaven, the outpouring of the Spirit. is praying for us from there, even right now. I love thinking about that. I don't know about you, but I need that. And his bodily return. But before we move on to see how Jesus' death and resurrection are foreshadowed in the parable, uh, I want to drive very, very briefly, and I can only just touch this base, but I got to thinking about it. I didn't get a question, but I bet there were some. Uh, did anybody ponder the tension that was there last week uh, in this incredible forgiveness that is the center. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And then in the middle of the chapter, there's the reality of the passage that's used for church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go to him. 
Uh, and if that doesn't solve the problem, take one or two with you. And if that doesn't solve the problem, uh, then tell it to the church, which in our case, usually the elders serve in place uh, of the church in larger churches. It's kind of hard to tell it to the whole church. That gets kind of messy. And, and so you've got forgiveness, but you've got even the possibility of excommunication. And uh, I'm really going to have to say, if you want more than what I can give you in a minute or so, uh, ask me. But you've got on the one hand the warnings of judgment for causing little ones to stumble and this church discipline thing. And then the other hand, you've got this incredible teaching on forgiveness that the passage ends with in 1835 in Matthew. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, throw you in jail, if you don't forget Forgive your brother from your heart. And all you got to do is look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 uh, and see that he says the same thing there. How do we fit those together? I mean, on the one hand, we're never to stop forgiving one another. Peter gets really disabused of his uh, short number of times, uh, and, and it's uh, 70 plus 7 or 7 times 7, and I think it's probably the former because you remember when Cain killed Abel and then Lamech is the evil descendant of Cain? Uh, and he says, if Cain uh, uh, you know, is cursed seven times, I'm going to get cursed 70 times seven. And uh, I think it's likely Jesus has that passage in mind. He knows Peter knows it. And he's saying, uh, you're going to have to do the reverse of what Lamech said in the negative. You're going to have to forgive 70 plus seven. Uh, how do those fit together? I, I think that uh, they fit together that we must stand ready to forgive. And the gospel's everything. Peter in 2 Peter 1 calls folks to add to their faith virtue and then knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, then Christian love, agape. And he says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. What does Peter say? He's saying that when a brother or sister stumbles and isn't adding to their faith virtue and knowledge and self-control in the growth. Uh, what do they need most? They need to hear the gospel again. They need to know they're forgiven. They don't need the law piled on them. They need to come back and refresh the joy that is theirs in Christ. And then they can go back and study the law, and it's a guide instead of a weight. But what about all the warnings and the excommunication thing? I think it's this. When somebody is pretending that they're living in the gospel, but not really, and they want to pretend that everything's okay when it's clearly not, then there are times when they're really hurting the honor of Christ and hurting the sheep. And what do good shepherds do if one sheep is, just won't give up trying to bite and kill other sheep? You separate them from the flock for a while, but you treat them like tax gatherers and sinners, which means treat them horrible, right? Now, I think Jesus is almost mocking his disciples in that. As I said to you last week, what was Matthew? He was a tax gatherer. What were they about to do in the book of Acts? They were about to bring in the Gentiles. They were even trying to minister to the Samaritans. So Jesus is saying you love and seek Samaritans and tax gatherers and sinners. But there are times when somebody's hurting somebody and hurting the honor of Christ that you can't just pretend everything's normal because that hurts Christ and it hurts the church. If you put that together, I think you can understand the passage. Okay, I got to move. Two, this point's a little longer and the last two are real short. Second, the king in the parable, the one we studied last week in Matthew 18 with the unforgiving servant. The king had to die. He had to love his servant above his own authority and honor in order to forgive him. Here's the parable. 
to sow it's in mine. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. That's the kingdom of heaven? Whoa, that sounds just like law. That's how Jesus starts the parable, but notice what happens. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I told you last week, it was, we can talk about it as being 20 years wages or millions of dollars in today's term. It was ridiculous that he could pay. His master ordered him, uh, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant set up a payment plan. Is that what the text says? That's the way we read it. That's the way the servant read it. And since, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. There has never been a servant, no, that's not true. It can be me sometimes, whose ears are so stopped up that he doesn't even hear what his master, the king, says to him. If he had listened, the master said, you don't owe me anything. We're not on that system anymore. We're on a new system. But when the same servant, verse 28, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and talked to him. No. And seizing him, he began to choke him. I mean, this is like the Hebrew text. It's sparse. Every word counts. Jesus is throwing it in your face. Saying this man who was totally forgiven, who's not on a payment plan ever again, goes and chokes his brother. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debts. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, but we had Peter distressed and the disciples distressed. Now we got the fellow servants distressed. Why? Because they were amazed at the king. One of the things I think I said to you before, I've got to say it fast, uh, Grant Howard, one of my beloved seminary professors, said, any question, any topic, always start the answer by asking, what is God like and, and what does God do? We always make the mistake, guess what? We like to talk about us more than God. So we focus on the servants. The one servant did this, the other servant did this. The servants were distressed. But the servants were distressed because their eyes were on the king. They said, this king, this is amazing. This is a new king. No king behaves like this. And now, remember how the parable began? The kingdom of heaven is like a king who's no longer on the payment plan, but who forgives sin and dies once for all. I mean, the grace of the gospel is in this parable in an incredible way. But the master summoned the man when he just wouldn't let off and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And his master in anger delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my father in heaven will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Death. 
forgiveness, new life. The gospel is revealed uh, in this changed king. He begins with the standard way of settling accounts. His servants bring him a servant who owes him more than anybody. But instead of applying the laws of kings and rulers, when this servant appears to show humility, the king sheds his honor and his authority, as well as his right to the money, and he releases him and forgives his debt. I'm going to leave the last two points uh, to next week. But let me lead us to why this is so important uh, with the table. Um, This parable really says that uh, the only basis for not having Jesus commit uh, forgiveness is refusing to have it. That wicked servant said, I won't accept forgiveness except on my terms. I won't come into your presence, God, except on my terms. I've got to be able to do something. And I think the backside of this is if he does something, then it's sort of like uh, God owes him something. Guess what? In the new kingdom, God doesn't owe us anything. He didn't owe, you know, he didn't owe us anything in the first. Did he have to create us? No. Did he have to be merciful to us? No. But, but there's a real sense that John nails it in his gospel where he says the greatest sin is unbelief. Uh, we spend time, and I don't want to get into trouble with Presbytery here, uh, but we spend time doing what we call fencing the table often of, of saying that the, the Lord's table, I say every time, I think since I've been here, that it's not UPC's table, it's not a Presbyterian table, you don't have to be a member of this church or a Presbyterian to take it. Uh, th- there's only one thing that, that you need, and uh, I don't know if I've said this yet, but I'll say it this morning, that you need to be perfect. <laughs> you can't come to the table unless you're perfect, but you can't be perfect. So there's un- way, only one way to not be perfect and to still come to the table, and that's to have Jesus be perfect for you. And to be so little in your own eyes, so least in your own eyes, so last in your own eyes, that you're fully willing to give the glory to Christ and say, the only reason I deserve to be at the table is Jesus. And it's Jesus' table. It's not our table. And the fact that it's Jesus' table changes everything and it changes the way we treat one another. You know, the reality of mercy is it spreads the, rea- the reality of loyalty to one another in Christ. The glue that holds a church together is that when you come to this table, you come as somebody who knows you don't have anything to bring but Jesus and your love for him and your trust in him. And, and you love having others around you that you know are in the same place. I remember being so convicted one time when I was helping lead a conference in the summer at Brown University uh, with crew back in my Boston, New England days. And it hit me that sometimes we uh, in that ministry who were discipling collegians and were a few years older, not that many to be as arrogant as we were, uh, you know, that it was almost as if we sometimes said to students, uh, you're a Christian now, so uh, God's your father and he's my father too. That makes us brothers. 
That's a good statement. But sometimes what we didn't say, but we acted out was, uh, now I'm an older brother and our father is very busy, so I'll go to the father and I'll talk to the father and then I'll come to you and talk to you and I'm your discipler. And don't misunderstand me. It's not that those of us who are more experienced don't have some more information and, and some more wisdom. But we've really started to cross a line that says we have something more than what they have. And the reason the church needs to celebrate this table so often is that pastors don't have any more than the people. Now, I know there are a lot of pastors that don't want me to say that because we can lose clout. But I want to tell you, the only kind of clout I want and the only kind of clout I want your new pastor to have is that you call him because you think he really wants to follow Jesus. And he'll shoot straight with you about following Jesus. And he admits he needs help in following Jesus. And he's willing to say, you can bind me to the mast and no matter how rough the storm gets, I'm going to stay on the ship and go down with it because I love the gospel more than I love myself. But I need your help to keep doing that. And we're in this thing together. Is that coming through at all? This is the reality. The gospel is so big that the only thing that keeps it is being like that unforgiving servant and not having Jesus' forgiveness take a hold of our hearts so much that it hurts when we don't forgive others. Oh, we struggle with it. There are a lot of people I don't like forgiving. But when I think about Jesus, I think about how, shoot, how straight he shoots in telling us that accepting the gospel is accepting taking up the cross that I'm going to stop my old way of life and start my new way of life. And the king in this parable started a new way of life and his servants in general got it. And that's why they were so disturbed when they saw the forgiven servant acting like he acted. That's spiritual maturity. Those fellow servants were on their way to walking with Jesus and they didn't even know it yet. And Jesus says, don't st make anybody that's on that pathway stumble by making them think that you're something else when Jesus is the only one that's something else. Let's pray. Father, you have uh, set apart these elements from this common use to this sacred use. You've told us uh, to come to the table uh, only if we are yours, only if we're willing to announce publicly in your church that, that we're yours and we struggle, but, uh, and we come because we're sinners and we know it and we're always going to be sinners, but we're trying to walk with you and we need help. So, Father, would you minister to us uh, as we set aside these elements from this common to this sacred use? Would we know Lord Jesus, that you're keeping your promise through your word and your spirit, even this morning, that you are with us as we take and partake by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.